It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. It's the second Tuesday of May. We'll talk about Microsoft updates. We'll talk about SpinRight. We'll talk about, well, your questions and Steve's answers, certificate revocation and more. By the way, Steve's going to declare victory a little later on. It's all coming up next on Twitter. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 455, recorded May 13th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 187. Security Now is brought to you by ShareFile from Citrix. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Visit ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to proxpn.com slash twit and use the code SN20. It's time for security now. Get ready to protect yourself with the explainer-in-chief himself, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. Steve's at grc.com where he's the creator of SpinRight, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility, and a uh, security guru, kind of per force. I think it all started for uh, Steve when his own site was DDoSed, and then you, I think you found spyware on a system, right? Hello, Steve. Well, it, be, it actually, hello, Leo. Great to be with you again. Uh, <laughs> Another one of my discursive time. introductions. Yeah, it was actually when we, when I put my company first with, I think it was our first persistent connection to the internet because we had this weird CC mail where we would dial up and get email on a timed basis, and which is really all you needed back in the early days. I mean, you know, and the GRC.com domain was registered just after Microsoft.com was wow. registered. Wow. So, you know, we were playing on the net, but only with email. And But anyway, it was a DSL connection, and so now we were persistently on the net. And I, you know, I was curious about the Internet, and I knew enough about it to poke around a little bit. And when some of my pokings... I poked a neighbor uh, in terms of IP address, and there was his C drive. And, <laughs> uh, and the thought, NetBIOS hack was invented. <laughs> this cannot be good. So then I poked a few more neighbors, and everybody's C drive was exposed. Yeah, so yeah. after I made sure ours weren't, I thought, okay, this is a problem. And so I just I wrote Shields up in order to – I thought I realized that when – Someone comes to uh, to my website, you know, I know who they are and what their IP is. So it's possible for me to give them a benign scan back, essentially a backscatter scan and check to see whether they had this problem. And of course, then and it was Kate who famously found this That's when right. you were doing the screensavers. And, uh, you know, and, and when you guys used it at the studio, it knew the name of your computer and your administrator name and so forth. It was like, it was a little unnerving to people. You know, I would <laughs> greet them, hi, Joe. And they're like, oh, what? my God. What? Yeah. So, and it's all been an interesting journey from there. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad we could uh, get together today. 
uh, and don't have to talk about SSL, certificate revocation. Actually, Heart there will bleed. be a little of that. Oh, crap. Well, yeah, well, you know, the, what I've learned is these big things just don't disappear no, overnight. Do they? So we have relatively few things to talk about prior to our 10 questions and answers. But I do want to there, – there are a couple things that happened that that we need to spend some time on. One is that it is the second Tuesday in May today – um, also, the Certificate Authority Security Council, uh, CA-CERT, has, or, or CASC, has weighed in into the Chrome revocation issue oh. uh, with, with an interesting statement that I want to share. Uh, after which, actually, I'm not sure what the timing was, but around the same time, the Chrome developers tripled down. So that's that's when you go one further than doubling down. <laughs> They've tripled down. Uh, then there was a really bad decision made by an appellate court overturning Google's previous victory over Oracle yes. on the Java oh, API issue. Oh, we'd love issue. to talk about that one. Yeah. Got to talk about that. We have then some other little miscellaneous fun stuff and 10 questions from our listeners. So Ooh, I think another a great podcast. We get a and a in here. That'll be fun. Yep. Well, yep. before we get to the uh, news of the day, I'll tell you what. Let me talk a little bit about my friends at Citrix and ShareFile, and you can take a little cup of coffee. And mm. oh, wait, hey, that's a good-looking mug you got there. Where'd you Where'd you get that thing? Is the, Is are these for sale, Leo? Yeah, can, they, I, I, think I, they I didn't are, have to but buy I don't know. One, but, yeah. No, that's yeah, a good question. A, are our mugs mug. for sale, or are they just our mugs? We don't know. And <laughs> I slurp. They are not for sale <laughs> in any store. You have to be a Twit host to get one. Ah, enjoy good. that muggery. <laughs> and I'll see if I can get a head strap for it. <laughs> Our show today brought to you by Citrix and ShareFile. It's how I share files with the radio stations. I, you know, I've used all sorts of techniques to uh, to sh- you know sync and share and all that stuff. And every company has something along these lines. But there were a couple of drawbacks, very common drawbacks. One, most of the systems you had to be a customer as well, so you had to create an account or have an account. And I can't make radio stations do that. The other is a lot of times they were confused. In fact, so much to the point that sometimes these guys would do things bad. Like they'd erase the file. They'd go, oh, thanks for sharing it. Erase it. And then no one else could get it. Stuff like that. And finally, I said, there's got to be a better way. That's when I found Citrix ShareFile. ShareFile is the best way to send attachments in email because you don't send attachments. And if you listen to the show, you know, I don't have to explain why that's a bad idea. But most business emails these days do have attachments. They have presentations or contracts or spreadsheets. There's a lot of files we want to share. Not secure. I don't have to tell you that. Emails like sending a postcard, but also not reliable. I mean, uh, with with these large files, bounce back's a real problem because they're too big. You don't get bounce backs with ShareFile. Your stuff is secure and you keep control of it. In fact, with ShareFile, you can set it up so that your recipient can only download it once or twice or whatever you set up uh, for a certain period of time. You can demand make sure that they put in their email address before you, but you don't have they don't have to log in. They don't have to be a customer. In fact, the best thing about this is when you share a file, you're sending a secure link. They click on that link. They see your company logo. They see a download button. They see what the file is. It's very straightforward, and I have not had one problem in now two years of using ShareFile with the radio stations because I share big audio files all the time, and it's just flawless. They love it, and you'll love it too. That's why I've set up a 30-day free trial for you. ShareFile.com. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW, one word. Steve will get credit. The trick on this, though, is that there are a couple of places you can click to do a free trial. 
Go to sharefile.com and at the top of the page it says podcast listeners. Click here. Click that one. And that way uh, we get credit for it, which it would be very nice. Security now is the offer code at sharefile.com. Show the boss. Show your IT professionals. Just use it for yourself. It's got all the features you'd want. I can't even go into them all. There's so many. Just give it a try for 30 days and you'll discover. Sharefile.com. Use our offer code security now. Steve Gibson, explainer-in-chief. What is the news of the day? It's a Patch Tuesday. It is Patch Tuesday. Patch Tuesday. And everything so far is tracking exactly as predicted, which is we there is there were a total of eight bulletins. Two were critical. Six were important. Of the two critical ones, one is for Internet Explorer, uh, all versions, 6 through 11, um, and I think it's only on server 2003 that they're still patching 6 if you have it because that's sort of the equivalent of XP, which they're no longer patching, um, And uh, but but 6 gets patched there. And, I, and when I pulled the notes together, we had the whatever they call it, their, their, advance, their advance notice, which was dated a week ago um, on the 6th. And after this all went to bed, then I did see that they had updated. So I don't know the details of the IE problem. I don't know that it's a, a critical remote code execution exploit like you know all the critical ones are. And the other one was on their SharePoint server and web apps server. So one critical for IE, um, which is not surprising. You know, IE is internet facing. And as we always said, you know, use IE with extreme caution. Maybe, you know, don't use it as your as your mainstream browser. Microsoft makes you use it for things like Windows Update and so forth. So you have no choice there. But, you know, that's also not unsafe to go to Microsoft and do Windows Update. So as long as it's not your... Uh, main browser, yeah, you're okay so far. So no, n- nothing really horrible this month. We will uh, we'll wait and see which month something horrible happens <laughs> to Windows XP. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, after last podcast, there was, uh, in fact, it was May 8th it was published. There is an organization of certificate authorities they call themselves the Certificate Authority Security Council. And so this is an industry group of all of the certificate authorities, you know, the, you know, GlobalSign, VeriSign, DigiCert, you know, the works. You know, GoDaddy, I'm sure, you know, they're all there. Well, they published an official response to the controversy, essentially. Their, 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 their response starts out... The recent Heartbleed issue has reawakened interest in SSL certificate revocation. Then they say, say, parens, see Adam Langley's blog, which is a link to it, Larry Seltzer's articles here and here, two links, and Steve Gibson's web pages. Those are the polar opposites, I guess. And Larry's uh, kind of in the middle. So that makes sense. Exactly. So here they are saying from their perspective... They said several years ago, the CA Browser Forum convened a special revocation working group to explore issues and solutions. Leading certificate authorities were actively involved in that group. 
and many of them invested in moving their OCSP responders to high-performance, high-availability content delivery networks, CDNs, to respond to browser vendors' requests for increased performance and reliability. And as an aside, when I was digging in, I discovered that GlobalSign, for example, and DigiCert, the two that have been on my radar, are all using CDNs. So this notion of their response being too slow, that's apocryphal and, you know, it's really no longer applies today. Um, continuing from their announcement, they said, um, Google was part of the revocation working group and announced CRL sets to that group and the wider CA browser forum. Certificate authorities were disappointed that Chrome wouldn't actively retrieve OCSP responses from them, but we were under the impression that CRL sets would include most revoked certificates. <clears throat> Adam did ask CAs to help CRL sets by telling Google about important revocations, and certificate authorities largely complied. For example, when the CA had to revoke intermediate certificates. But certificate authorities have no reliable way of knowing which end entity certificate revocations are important. I mean, that's, it's like, you know, there's more than two million of them. Which ones would you choose? Um, since certificate owners don't reliably tell certificate authorities whether or not the revocation is important. Many CAs allow the customer to choose from a list of revocation reasons. But just as companies are hesitant to reveal that they've suffered a security breach, it's assumed that they are hesitant to tell the certificate authority that their private key had been compromised. And then they say in parens, this would constitute an important revocation. As a result, end users and browsers have no way to determine whether a certificate was revoked because of the server's loss of control over the key, fraudulent activity by the server administrator, the presence of malware on site, or simply out of an abundance of caution. Heartbleed is a perfect example of why revocation is important even without identified key compromise. No one can say for certain that their server's private key was compromised. Most of the revocations that have occurred are going on CRLs for business reasons, as Adam defines it, and not picked up by CRL sets. It's now clear, writes this CA group, that CRL sets are simply a blacklist of high-profile revoked certificates. Other browsers have similar blacklists, and these can be effective at times, for example, to indicate revocation of an intermediate certificate that may be several years old and does not contain an OCSP pointer. But they're not a substitute for OCSP checking of end entity certificates. Google moved away from supporting OCSP without adequately informing Chrome users of this fact. Although IE and Safari 
also soft fail if an OCSP response is not received, those browsers still use OCSP by default. The, and, of course, Firefox does as well, as does Opera, all of them but Google or Chrome. The engineers creating those browsers apparently have not concluded that OCSP is broken. Even if revocation checking by OCSP isn't 100% accurate, it can still protect a high percentage of users who navigate to a site with a revoke certificate and receive an OCSP response indicating revocation. Turning off revocation checking for everyone means no one is protected. All browsers compete on speed and performance. And OCSP checking can slow page loading. We think many browser users would trade off a small performance hit for increased confidence in the authenticity of the website. And they finish saying, revocation is a very complex issue with lots of room for debate. Reasonable people can disagree on the effectiveness of using OCSP. The CASC, that's the Certificate Authority Security Council, agrees that OCSP stapling and putting OCSP must staple extensions in certificates is one of the best solutions to address many issues with revocation at this time. But until that happens, we oppose browsers removing non-stapled OCSP checks. So, so that's victory. 100% agreement with my position. Yes. Hmm. That, that is. Has Adam Langley is, responded to that? No. He's, hmm. he's so hmm. annoyed by all of this. However, there is a response of a sort. They have disabled it and removed the checkbox to allow users to turn it on. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm not kidding oh. you. They have, that's what I said when I referred to them tripling down. There is, it is called confusing. So it's issue 361820 and it's check for, now you'll probably still see it. I still it. have uh, my, it, yeah. My Chrome version is 34. But if you, if you look in the show notes, Leo, there's a link there to, uh, to code.google.com. It's their, their, their Google bug tracking. And uh, so it's future versions of Chrome, then. Well, it's all it's happening. It's version thirty-seven. So oh, right. what happened was as well. right. So what happened was you know because because they've got them in the pipeline and yeah, they're yeah. like nightly releases and and so forth. It's in. So you see, it says Canary. That's that's their gamma channel. So there's okay. Chrome, there's Chrome Beta, and there's Chrome Canary, which is the you know the beta beta channel. So that means right. they're going to slowly migrate it up. So. What, so what they the said confusing was confusing certificate revocation checkbox. Yes, they called it confusing. Doesn't confuse it's, me. Well, and understand also that it's first of all it's under settings where almost no one goes. Then it's under advanced where you know gurus go or like people who want advanced settings. And then it's down there, and it's pretty self-evident to me. And so 27 hours ago, when I looked this morning, now it's probably more like 20 or 29, what, what happened was there was even this thread was controversial. People were, were coming in saying, no, 
don't remove it. What's confusing about it? Blah. I mean, and so they shut down the thread. They locked the thread because they just didn't want to discuss it anymore. And then one of the developers posted into the locked thread, the final entry says, tested the same on Win8 Chrome version 37.0.1987.1. And then that's an official build number. They said, Canary, fix works as expected. The confusing (laughs) certificate revocation checkbox. How hard would that be to remove? (laughs) I know. I'm glad they tested it. That was a tricky patch, baby. Glad they made sure that it, yeah. And if not, you just use some you know, some whiteout, you know, on your screen. Uh, <laughs> removed under manage certificates, and then he actually has a screenshot of of the button showing no checkbox below it. I guess if your position so, is that the certificate checking for revocation doesn't really accomplish anything, as it is their position, then yeah. you just say we don't want to put something that implies you're being protected when you really doesn't do anything. I guess that's yeah. not a, that is confusing in the sense no. that well this the, the 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 reason this whole thing is is controversial is it th- you can see both sides. Yeah. I mean yeah. Adam Adam was never wrong on fact. Right. He's just set himself a position where he's making perfect be the enemy of good. Right. And well, everyone, a lot of geeks do that. That's very common. Well, and that was my problem with raw sockets. You know, everyone was like, oh, Unix has had raw sockets and Linux has it and Gibson doesn't know what he's talking about. It's like, folks, you know, there is a gray area that matters. And Making something yeah. better, even if you can't make it perfect, is still better. Is worthwhile. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, especially when the cost is so minimal. It's right. not like people are clicking on links and then going, oh, my God. God, why did I turn that checkbox? I'm so confused. Leo, I'm confused. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. Now I think we can put this to rest. I think it's very interesting that the CA authorities themselves agree with you. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, if if I had lost control of my cert, I would absolutely want to protect the industry... And anyone, it's, it's kind of in the. That's what the point is of a cert. Yeah, revocation and, and is you, kind of built into the entire concept. If you don't, you can't have trust. If right. you can't have non-trust, right? By definition, and it's one thing to sort of stay for you know to sort of come at it from a, a from a thousand miles and go, oh well, you know, what's the chance? But I tell you, it gets very personal when it's your own certificate, right. and if I. Ask myself the question, if I needed to revoke a certificate, do I wish the browsers would honor it? It's like, oh, my, of course. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely yeah. want them to, to honor that. But, you know, Google's decided otherwise. They're, we're going to win, ultimately, just as, we, as, as, as happened with raw sockets. Microsoft removed them after they got attacked by them, by the MS Blast Word. And they thought, oh, this is what Gibson was talking about. Mm-hmm. So... You know, there will be the infrastructure will evolve without Google's help. And that was my issue was we could do this better with Google than without. But it's going to be without. We'll do it anyway. Then they'll switch around because then they're really going to be behind, which right, is, you know, right. too bad. But so be it. Okay. Now, in 2010, 
So four years ago, Oracle sues Google over 37 specific Java APIs, which were used in Android. Not um, the code. Right. The Not name the of the function. The name yeah. of the variables. Not the code. The name. Right. And, and we waited two years for, you know, like, and, and, you know, we remember talking about this. I mean, because this is like, wait a minute. You can't, no, you can't protect an API. I mean, you know, Linux copied the Unix API. And, and lang you know, multiple people do languages. And so the assumption has always been that, like, you know, the language itself is, especially when, especially when it was expressly made public. I mean, no one would have used Java if Sun hadn't said it's, you know, of course everyone can use it. This is, you know, we've got one. Other people have them. Everybody, and, and we just want to make sure they're compatible. You know, that, that, that would really be their only, you know, issue. So we waited two years. And one of the most impressive judgments in the history of technology came down from a judge who was so determined to rule correctly, he learned Java. Awesome. And wrote and wrote a range check. He said, yes. I did it over the weekend. <laughs> yes. And and when you read his ruling, he's using all of the terms correctly. Right, right. Instantiate and instance and you know and, and prototype. I mean, he's using these terms that are, you know, programmer terms and you know, he's this a judge. Judge William Alsop and yes. pat on the back to Judge Alsop. Yes. So um, at the time, two years ago, Wired summed it up nicely. They said Oracle said the Java APIs were like a beautiful painting. Google said they were more like a file cabinet. And in the end, Judge William Alsup came closest to agreeing with Google, comparing an API to a library that organizes the Java programming language. In the much-anticipated 2012 ruling, which we waited for for two years, in the epic legal battle between Google and Oracle, Alsup wrote, quote, each package is like a bookshelf in the library. Each class is like a book on the shelf. Each method is like a how-to-do-it chapter in a book. Go to the right shelf, select the right book, and open it to the chapter that covers the work you need. His ultimate point was that the organization of a library is not the organization of a library is not subject to copyright. Yes, he said, the books themselves are copyrightable. That would be the actual implementation of the code, but not the way the books are, orga or are organized. In other words, Google did not infringe on Oracle's copyright. And by the way, this was both a patent and a copyright suit, and the patent got completely thrown out. There was just like no chance that this stuff was, that you, you couldn't patent the APIs. So they said, okay, well, we're, then they're copyrighted. So, so, 
it wasn't subject to, to patent. So in other words, Google did not infringe on Oracle's copyright when it cloned 37 – and understand, cloning is what you have to do. It's not like you can – you know, the, the, the API is the language. It, it's the – you know, it's the function calls that you use in order to invoke aspects of the language. So, you know, you can't change the arguments around. You, 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 they have to be the same. Um, you know, and there are, for example, there are there are Windows, you know, there are people who made Windows work-alike OSs and even Wine, Wine. running on Linux. Well, is, it, 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 let's go back. We wouldn't have a PC industry if uh, Compaq hadn't been able to reverse engineer uh, the BIOS. by the way, that is, that is halt and catch fire. It is going to be Compaq. Okay, yes. good. That's it must have been. It, I figured it. That's why it's in Texas. Yeah, and yeah. And, and I've been watching the uh, the trailers for. Me it. too. I've been and trying to figure it out if it's compact yes. or Ti or at what. At one point, and you can tell. I mean, and, and the, the 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 trailers are cut very quickly. They 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 roll very fast. But at one point, you see someone. T- they they they're there talking about like stripping it down. Right. You see them sliding the cover off of an original XT or ah. or, or PC. And you also see them lifting that classic IBM logoed blue and and sort of tan striped box out of the trunk. And so these guys are going to reverse engineer the IBM PC. And so, I mean, this couldn't be more apropos to this discussion because remember, I mean, this – was controversial and what they did was they did a clean room implementation of the bios they had people who never who expressly never had contact with an ibm pc only the specification of the bios calls that is the bios api and it stood up in court so here we are again with google and oracle and so they they said in other words, Google did not infringe on Oracle's copyright when it cloned 37 Java APIs in building its Android mobile operating system, though Google copied the organization of the APIs. It built the code behind them on its own, or at least mostly on its own. Um, quote, the Java and Android libraries are organized in the same basic way. This is the judge again in his ruling. The Java and Android libraries were organized in the same basic way. Again, his analogy to a public library. But all of the chapters in Android have been written with implementations different from Java, but solving the same problems and providing the same functions. And then Google wrote, this reaffirms our long-standing understanding of the law that these APIs were free for anyone to use as we did, taking just the declarations and doing our own independent implementations. That's the way developers use Java. You can't say a language is free for everyone to use and then hold back the nouns and the verbs. So now we move forward to last week, 2014, and the bad news that shook the industry, that those of us that were watching. I tweeted it and got a lot of responses because uh, I just, you know, this is one of your head shakers is 
Oracle appealed that decision. And it's worth mentioning that that uh, Alsup wrote this so carefully and so clearly specifically to withstand appeal because he knew there was a lot at stake. Everybody has rights to appeal and he wanted his ruling and his, his investment in under, in like taking the time to understand this, to learn, to become a Java programmer yeah. in order <laughs> so to great. judge this. Yeah. He wanted it to withstand appeal. So it didn't. Uh, in the in updating their article now again in Wired, uh, they uh, Wired wrote Oracle won a big legal victory over Google on Friday. That was last Friday, when a federal appeals overturned a ruling in their epic battle over the Java programming language. Larry Ellison and company are calling it a win for the entire software industry. Oh my God. But others see it differently. Count me among them. They believe it could harm the industry in enormous ways. Some even think it could come back to bite Oracle. The dispute comes down to arcane code used in Google's Android operating system. And if the courts ultimately find in favor of Oracle, the decision could reverberate across the tech industry. The situation is complicated, writes Wired, but it can be summed up pretty simply. Oracle owns Java. Google cloned Java in building Android. Oracle sued. And now the courts are trying to decide when it's okay to clone someone else's software. Now, we, gotta, we have to be careful. it's not cloning, and that's the thing yeah, that bugs gonna, me. Yes, I was going to say, we have to be careful with this summary because this is not accurate. They, they didn't, you know, they... they, they Cloned the interface. The, the cloned the way it, you call the the, the name yes. by which you call routines. That's all. Right, like the, the the definition of the language, not the not the plumbing, right. not the the implementation. Yep. And well, now it and, will and, be appealed and, again, uh, of course, to the to the Supreme Court in all likelihood. Yeah. Uh, the good news is, while I have no high opinion of the Supreme Court's technical knowledge, they have been in recent uh, decisions very uh, pro-intellectual property. Actually, I don't know if that's going to be a good thing at all. <laughs> Come to think of it, well, we'll um, see. With any uh, luck, with any luck, they will look at Alsip's decision yeah. and his logic, right. and they will say this holds that that the appellate court made a mistake yeah, a huge and, mistake a huge mistake yeah. oh but, and leo do you know what would happen it would be the end of life as we know it i mean i mean it, 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 it i can't even i mean it, it oh wow wow i mean yeah. well i mean microsoft could say to wine nope can't do that that's not the end of the world uh i guess at&t bell labs that own the the unix trademarks uh copyrights uh could say to linus no more linux that would be pretty disastrous yes um, yes i mean and i mean throughout anybody who is who is using a standard interface could have the the, the originator say in fact it would end up changing us to the point where anything that moving forward any interface that someone wanted to promote would have to be expressly and explicitly released into the public domain before anybody else would consider coding to it. Because otherwise, you're locked in 
to to no, their terms. Maybe I mean, that's not remember, a bad thing. That might not be a bad thing at all. Remember that it was it was Microsoft's copying Turbo, you know, Philippe at Borland and driving, you know, no, no, I'm sorry, it was Philippe copying Microsoft. My, my, Microsoft was selling languages for you know hundreds, four, five, six hundred dollars. When Philippe comes out with Turbo Pascal for forty nine bucks, and just I mean, absolutely, if you if you could have had you know a blood pressure cuff on Bill Gates at that point, it would have shot off the scale. Well, um, and there's a good example. I mean, a Pascal or any programming yes. language. Yes. Uh, if if you write a compiler, you're performing the same function, but you're not with the same code. You're just copy. You're just use emulating the API. It's the, it's the language. It's the language. Yes. Well, boy, I, you know, it's just such a stupid decision. It's very discouraging. Well, I don't. I, I have. I have to say, I have not looked at the reasoning for the appeal, except they they must have made a mistake. They must have looked at this and said, "Oh, look, copyright applies." Right. And and so clearly, Oracle's attorneys learned from Alsip's carefully written judgment how to strengthen their position that copyright applies and they 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 were copywriting you know argument you know like function names and argument definitions and saying this is ours and and again the the annoying thing is if anyone believed this would ever happen back when what's his name uh at sun invented oh, uh, James Gosling I wonder what he thinks uh, of all this. Was it Gosling or was it? Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. There was the other guy I thought that did did, did, did Java when it was going to be a set top box interpretive language. Yeah, what was the name of it? It was Oak. Um, yeah, and I can't remember. You know, the little wonderkind who was there. Uh, I thought it Sun. was. I thought it was Gosling, but uh, I don't know who else. I'm not pinging was, on yeah, his Gosling name. Gosling wrote Oak. Um, Scott, somebody. Oh, you're thinking um, of Scott McNeely. You mean the guy who's, who founded Sun? Maybe I was thinking of Scott. Yeah, because... Uh, yeah, jo- but Gosling, but Gosling Java? wrote though, Java, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, again, yeah, so, so my point is that, you know, if, if anyone believed that, that, that their proprietary argument... Bill Joy, are you in, thinking of? No. Bill Joy, Bill that's Joy. who I was thinking of. I knew you'd be of. thinking yeah. of him. Yeah. <laughs> Love Bill. Yeah. Um, anyway, so if if anyone imagined that that Java would ever be held to this standard, nobody would have adopted it. I mean, obviously, Google wouldn't have. I mean, you know, Oracle's annoyed that Google has done such a big thing with Java, and when, whereas they never managed to. So you know, this is your typical. I think this is why you know, Oracle bought Sun, bought Java, uh, is to sue the pants off people. Wow. That's what I'm thinking. Wow. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, this is just... Oh. Damn you, Larry Ellison. I know. <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Yeah, bad. So uh, we talked about... Uh, we talked about um, Halt and Catch Fire, which I'm I'm sure now, based on the trailers, it is a, it's going to be a fun, fun uh, story of the reverse engineering of the IBM PC. I think that's even going to be... I mean, it's a different story, obviously, than than the Skunk Works project down in Boca to create the PC. Right, which would have been, uh, frankly, but, maybe a more interesting story. I don't know. I mean, yeah, 
I thought that was quite an interesting story. And, of course, uh, the guy who did it died in the plane crash. Fabulous story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 of course they could have brought in you know all of the fun stories that we have in our industry about the visit to a DRI and and the visit to to Gates would have Microsoft been involved. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did want to mention they're not an advertiser uh, on this podcast, but you they are lurking around Twit somewhere. I got sent a this package. Uh, uh, this it's called Har- Harry's shaving yes, product. Yes, we sent you a Harry's kit. Yeah. Yes, H A R R Y apostrophe S, and in anticipation, well, because I had it in the first place, but also because I thought they were going to be an advertiser, I shaved with them. And <laughs> wow, Leo, I'm, you like I it, just, huh? I really, I don't know if it's the cream or the blades, but something gave me the best shave. I don't. I think I've ever had, and you know, and I, I normally use the Edge Gel and the Gillette, whatever it is. The, oh, the Fusion is the one I use, um, and you know, I hate shaving, and I don't think this will make me love it anymore. But I'll certainly hate it less. Um, anyway, I've already ordered refills of these wow. things because this. I mean, wow. I've, I've switched. I'm now using that's this. Awesome. Yeah. So, not, I don't. So, they advertise on some of our shows. We'll get them on your show. I'm sure that's why we so, sent you a uh, a kid. H A R for our listeners. H A R R Y S Harry's H A R R Y S dot com, and I'm you know apparently it's less expensive than the ridiculously deal. overpriced yeah. r- razor blades. Yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of the silver. I got the the fancy pack with the silver. The Truman. You got the you Truman know, kit, which we talked executive about. Executive yeah. handle. Yeah. I like the rubber, uh, the the plastic one that looks like it's more square. It's on its way. I, I ordered one immediately because it's like, okay, let's just, you know, we'll improve on this a you little bit. You did miss a spot over your lip there a little bit, but I, <laughs> no, that's kidding. Oh, um, and I mean, it also, it like, it, it came in underneath. Yeah. I like to kind yeah. of trim the, 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 the upper edge of my upper lip underneath <laughs> the oh anyway i'm completely happy so no, i mean no endorsement for any reason except i wanted to let our listeners know if you're a blade shaver not a like like a buzzing machine sh- shaving person check it out because you may feel the same way i do i'm i'm just i was really pleased they um I think there's an offer code TWIT for four free blades, I think it is, with purchase. So if you buy, the next time you buy your Harry, a kit, use the offer code TWIT, and I think you get four free blades. And they ship pretty quickly. I got a oh, notice yeah, right. maybe two days after I ordered, and I, they didn't know who I was, so it wasn't any special yeah. deal. It was good. just, you know, good, they, good, good. it's on its way to me, so I'm pleased. Well, I'll make sure they Bring know it. this and that they, <laughs> they should buy ads. This was not a paid ad. <laughs> this was no. an unsolicited user testimonial. I just wanted to say it's awesome. like, hey, I discovered something. Yeah. Um, we're ro- we're rolling forward again with uh, Squirrel. I I let on Sunday afternoon that the gang in the news group got a hold of the the ver- the the you know the growing version that I have, and surprisingly, it worked everywhere. That is on everybody's versions of Windows, and we we're we're tr- tracking down some f- two functions that are not to, that were not written in Wine. Uh, in order to so it doesn't sort of silently log in the background that it, that it's, it's got it's logging fix me fix me fix me because there's some I'm calling some things that aren't implemented but they're not necessary actually, um, but uh, and this is all a preamble for next week's podcast because it is the entropy harvester which is now written and running 
uh, and uh, producing high quality, true random numbers, not <laughs> pseudo random numbers. Love that name. <laughs> and, and in a way which, oh, what harvester? Yeah. Entropy harvester. Yeah. Entropy harvester. Um, and I got a also a nice note uh, from a Nick Bowen in Walnut Creek. Uh, you know, we talked we've talked about recently, obviously, about how Spinrite recovers people data. Then we were talking recently about speeds up people's drives. And we've, we've touched a couple times on how it can even help you destroy your data. And when I, when I entertain the idea of deliberately building that into Spinrite 6.1 or some version of Spinrite, all the guys over in the, in the Spinrite news group said, no, 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 don't put in like a secure wipe in Spinrite. That would be crazy. Keep that separate. And I mean, the reason I was I was interested is that all of the work that I was doing and will soon be doing again on 6.1 as soon as I'm through with Squirrel and get back to 6.1, all of it was completely applicable to writing the absolute best uh, secure wiping utility that the industry has seen. I mean, in terms of thoroughness and speed, I'll be really positioned to do that. Once I have all of this low-level, large buffer technology running in Spinrite. Until then, oh, and so I'm going to do a separate utility. Uh, I've already got the name uh, and a trademark on it, in fact, and domains and, and so forth. It's called Beyond Recall, which will be GRC's absolute secure wiper for spinning and solid-state media. But that's tomorrow. Today, what generally people use is DBAN which is Derek's Boot and Nuke, D-B-A-N, and it's spelled D-A-R-I-K. If I, I ever meet Derek's. Derek, I'm going to shake his hand. <laughs> D-Ban is awesome. I love it. Yes. And so in this case, however, Nick wrote, he said, a friend recently brought me his computer for me to run D-Ban on prior to him getting rid of it, which is, of course, wise because it's freaky, in fact, if you buy like drives from fries that they, you they're off often like not sealed and i've pr- purchased some supposedly new drives and found other people's software installed on them so, more a comment on fries than anything else but go ahead yeah, yeah exactly anyway so he says but it was now an older machine and d-man would not run because the hard drive would just grind I had purchased Spinrite a couple of years ago and hadn't used it yet. So, Nick, thank you, thank for, you. for purchasing it, for supporting us. But I thought this would be a great opportunity. So I ran a quick level two repair scan and it fixed the issue. This allowed me to securely wipe the drive before it was given away. Thanks for the podcast and great product, Nick. So here the moral is, you can today you can run Spinrite as a, you know, to to fix the drive enough that then you can nuke the drive using D-band to absolutely scuttle any data that it's got. And, of course, all current owners of Spinrite will be able to upgrade to 6.1 for no charge um, as soon as that's ready. And then I think probably once the Spinrite series is finished, 6.1 will probably not have native USB because I don't want to delay it for USB because it's going to do so much for the majority of users, you know, for Mac and and high performance on PCs, 
directly operating at the hardware level and not using the BIOS, that I want to get that out. But, that, but I don't want to stop. Then I'm going to look into USB and adding that support natively. That finishes six. I think then that I will write beyond recall and create a new product, the first new product we've had in 25 years. Um, and then oh, go, on, go on to Spinrite 7. So you are a busy that's, boy. That's currently the architecture. But first, <coughs> Squirrel, which is where I'm, where I'm working now and making great progress. And I think, uh, I think things are going to happen very quickly now. So we'll have, uh, I'll keep everyone up to, uh, up to date, uh, but uh, it won't be long. Steve's roadmap, product roadmap, you've just heard right there. All right, we got 10 questions for you, Mr. G. We're going to get to those in just a second. Before we do, perhaps it would behoove me to talk a little bit about our good friends at ProXPN. Now's a good time to know about OpenVPN, the way that you protect yourself online if you're on an open access point at a hotel, in a coffee shop, or if you just don't want your internet service provider to be looking over your shoulder, and we know they do. OpenVPN encrypts your traffic, everything coming from your computer or your mobile device, to the ProXPN servers. So it protects it till it gets out in the open, away from you, and... And then, of course, it has to unencrypt because most sites don't, you know, you don't have a deal with them. But uh, this is how OpenVPN works. ProXPN is a hosted solution running OpenVPN and running it well, running it uh, in a way that really does protect you and your privacy online. 512-bit encryption tunnel, of course, of course. Actually, you know what, if you go to ProXPN.com slash... Twit right now. You can read all about our deal and all about ProXPN. 2048-bit encryption key. They also support PPTP for devices that don't. And by the way, if you're on an Android device, they do because they have a great Android app that gives you open VPN capability. iOS as well. ProXPN.com is the place to go to read all about it. They do have a free solution. And you can always try that, the basic solution. But the premium solution, normally $6.25 a month, we're going to give you a kind of a special deal. That's $6.25 a month if you buy an annual plan, $75 for an entire year. If you go month to month, it's $10 a month. But if you use our offer code SN20, you're going to save 20%. And not just for the first month or year, but for forever, for the life of your account. That means it's going to be less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan. That is a nice deal. And here's the beauty part. You can emerge on the Internet, not, you know, when you come out on the Internet in public, not just in the U.S., Dallas, Los Angeles, Seattle, New York City, but also in London or Amsterdam or Singapore. That means geographic restrictions are a thing of the past as well. If you're worried that your ISP is spying on you, keeping track with a six strikes law and all of that, ProXPN is a great way to protect your privacy online. You really want to be private, you can pay with Bitcoin as well as Visa and PayPal. Visit ProXPN.com slash twit. Learn all about it. You can cancel any time in the first seven days and pay nothing. Uh, check out the Android app, the iOS app. And if you decide to buy SN20, we'll give you 20% off for the life of your account. Protect yourself online with the best hosted version of OpenVPN, ProXPN.com slash twit. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte. Are you ready, my friend? Questions, answers. The people want to know. 
<clears throat> we'll start with question one from Paul Byford, Tamworth, the United Kingdom. He wanted to follow up and elaborate on the future of revocation and DNS. I guess you're right. We're not done with it yet. Yeah, well, I think this one will be. <laughs> <laughs> by, 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 by the end of this podcast. We'll have covered everything you'd ever want to know. But Paul brought up a really good point that I hadn't uh, focused on enough, so I thought I would uh, share his thought. He writes, great show, listeners since episode one, etc., etc. In last week's podcast, you touched on DNSSEC and Dane. Although I know you've talked about DNSSEC in the past, I think it's worth looking at in terms of the chain of trust and revocation debate. As I understand it, each link in the certificate chain for DNSSEC is tied to the domains within a URL from the top-level domain on down. And so there should be a clear path for checking the chain of trust. Also, all the certificates are pushed out through the DNS system and so should be cached on servers close to the user, normally at the ISP, and refreshed often, often typically once a day. So <clears throat> it seems to me that this solves both the speed of access issue and the revocation problem, as well as providing a quick way to validate CA-issued certificates from the current chain of trust through the TLSA records and Dane. I know that doesn't completely solve the nightmare and, or the nightmare that is the X.509 certificate validation, but it's a good step forward and does provide a second chain of trust for confirming that users are connecting to the server they think they are. What do you think? Yeah, I, first of all, Paul lays out the architecture, I think, cleanly, and, and he's absolutely right. Um, as I did mention last week, once we get DNSSEC, and it's, you know, it just, it's a slow process because there's so much inertia. We need servers to get updated. We need clients to get updated. We need to make sure that they're like, that the internet infrastructure itself allows us to work. And it's, and it's one of those situations where, you know, all DNS servers right now understand DNS, but DNSSEC requires an, an extension to that understanding and it's broken unless everybody agrees to understand it. So it, it just, it's tough to get, but oh my goodness, is it going to be powerful? Because it will give us an internet scale addressable directory that is secure. So as I did mention yesterday, this Dane is a means for using domain name association of data where, for example, GRC could publish the hash of our certificate. And thanks to DNSSEC, it is unspoofable. No, none of Dan Kaminsky's concerns with, with spoofing or, you know, any DNS hijacking or rewriting or anything because you end up with essentially in the same way that we have a signed certificate which is the reason we trust the certificate, we have a signed DNS record. So, and, and this is where the, this, this chain comes in because, in fact, people probably heard about like, like the root servers are now signed, meaning that their records are cryptographically signed. So we just need to extend this out to the, the end machine. And so, for example, as I was saying, GRC could publish through DNS the hash of our certificate. And, and if browsers use DNS to look up the hash, 
they would have a, an absolutely secure means of knowing that as as recent as the cash is, GRC is asserting that this is our certificate. Not the certificate authority, but but we, because GRC controls our own DNS records. So what, what's cool about this is it, 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 as Paul says, it creates a different chain. It also creates one where the, the entity whose credentials are being relied on has control over the trust, which is really neat because it means if something happened, we could change our certificate and immediately change our DNS record and get it re-signed so that it's, it's, it's verifiably from us. And then as that DNS update propagated through the internet, um, that new certificate would, would, would then be understood to be current. So I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, we just need DNSSEC. I, I I can see so many different valid, you know, really useful things. Um, I mean, and we know, for example, that once we have it, uh, the anti-spam technologies, which are relying on DNS, will also get more leverage. And we're just going to have, it's just incredibly useful to have an, a, a secured directory for the Internet that scales at internet size, and DNS has already proven itself able to do that. The hierarchicalness and the caching and just, you know, and the very low, you know, the the, the lightweight use of UDP packets, just it's made DNS a real success. Now we need to lock it down and secure it. And when we have that, wow, that's, I think we're going to end up finding lots of uses for it. How, where do we stand right now? I mean, I know... Um, it's a good question because um, I was looking into that in this context, and I know that the late the late model client operating systems do support DNS at some level. Um, I, I, something I ought to really focus on a little bit more. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, and I, I know that yeah. Open uh, DNS has decided not to support DNSSEC. Right, they're using their own protocol that you and th- that we've talked about they're using dns curve as the as, as their solution where they where they install a proprietary client in their in the users of the open dns system and then that establishes a secure link to them to, to prevent spoofing and forgery and interception and so forth uh, question two comes from Chris Folks. This is a big fat softball right over the plate for Mr. Gibson. Steve, <laughs> it's actually a tweet. He's at my ghost world. Do you think it's a good thing that there are so many CAs, certificate authorities? Is too many a bad thing? In Firefox, there's a huge list. Well, there's a little more to say, I think, than just that, you know, punting the softball. Um, one of the things that was mentioned in the last couple of weeks, which is why this sort of caught my attention, is that the it's worth noting that the vast majority of actively used certificates come from a tiny minority of certificate authorities. So that if you had GoDaddy and VeriSign and DigiCert and global sign and just a few more you end up with a you know covering the 
large bulk of the sites you want to go to. Yes, you could go to an obscure site somewhere that that would say, wait a minute, you know, and your browser would say, I don't trust this certificate. It's signed by somebody I've never heard of. But some people that are really security conscious have experimented with dramatically winnowing down the number of certs in their local root store of, of, you know, of certificate authorities whose signatures on received certificates from web servers they trust, and they do really well with only a handful of them. And, of course, the advantage then is if you went to a major site that you'd not been having trouble with and suddenly you had trouble, that would be a big red flag. That would be, wait a minute, uh, why do I have a certificate from a site that was fine yesterday, but it's not now? Probably because that site is being spoofed by somebody. And, you know, the other thing, Leo, you may have seen this in the news, and it's not in my notes here, but I wanted to remind myself not to forget mentioning it. Many people tweeted it. And 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 it was, unfortunately, it was a it was one of these stories that came out and everyone picked up on it with a bad headline talking about the the I think I think it was the non insignificant number of fraudulent certificates that are in use on the internet. Did you see that in the last week? Uh, because no, I didn't. Hmm. Well, it turns out it was a bogus story. What they oh, were I'm talking glad I didn't about see it then. <laughs> yeah, what they were talking about for those who did was certificates being minted by border appliances that we have often talked about because I'm so opposed to them so that, for example, antivirus is able to decrypt your encrypted communications in order to scan it and then re-encrypt it. So these are, you know, the, the, the high-end corporate firewalls and corporate AV appliances which are, I mean, even some software does this. Some end-user software installs its certificate on your machine so you trust certificates it signs. And then when you think you're communicating to a site, you're actually communicating to it. It's signing the site's certificate that it synthesizes and giving it to your browser to make it transparent. And it's and so that's what the story referred to is the... Their their instrumentation on the client side was picking up a high percentage of fraudulent certificates. Well, yes, but they were locally fraudulent. They're not out on the Internet being fraudulent because nobody would trust them. They're trusted because your computer has been, some would say, compromised by adding to its root store they a certificate for the AV company or whoever it is who did this, you know, this appliance. So that's what that all was. Um, so in answer to Chris and asking, you know, do I think it's is it a problem that there's so many certificate authorities? You know, we've we've I talked about this years ago when I happened to look and saw that there were like 400 of them that Windows was trusting. And I remember on this podcast saying, oh, my Lord. What? That's where, of course, unfortunately, our much made fun of Hong Kong post office came from because they were among those hundreds. Um, and so the danger is that 
any one of those can sign a certificate for any domain. There's an any-to-any mapping right now, and that's one of the things that the that DNS can help solve. Because in DNS, we could publish who's, what authority is our chosen authority for our domain. And so the browser could check and say, oh, look, Gibson likes DigiCert. I'm not going to trust a certificate from anybody else even if it's otherwise trustworthy because that's not what GRC has in their DNS record. So, you know, we don't have that yet, although that record is defined. The problem is everybody wants to be a certificate authority. I mean, you're you're printing money. You're you are. You set up a system which verifies people's identity to varying degrees depending upon how what kind of certificate you want. Do you just want a DV, a domain validation certificate? Do you want an organization valid certificate? Or do you want an EV, an extended validation certificate? So, so once you establish that and you write some, you know, create a, a, web, a, a web presence and a web system that allows people to submit their certificates for signing and send them back, you then charge them a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money for these things. And they all expire every two or three years. So if you have kept them as a loyal customer, they're going to come back and pay you a lot of money again for nothing, for bits. So who wouldn't want to be in that business? And then who's to say that, you know, a legitimate new company shouldn't be in that business. And then, of course, they say, hey, we're in the business now. So they get their certificate signed by somebody who's already trusted that bootstraps them in until they get their certificate pushed out into all the browsers. And they can make a valid claim to the browsers saying, hey, we're a legitimate company. Check us out. We're good guys. We should be able to do search too. And the browsers say, yeah, okay, you meet all of our policy requirements. And so the world gets one more CA. And that's happened. <laughs> so, you know, it's like who wouldn't want to do it? And that's why there's so many of them. Yeah. And, yes, it is from a, from a pure security standpoint, the more we have, the more opportunity for problems because – you know, unless you really know who they are, all of them, your browser's trusting them all. Yikes. Yikes. But it's understandable how it happened. Yeah. From Cairn, can, as they say it in Australia, Abby Beckert, uh, with a little more on the EFT question. <clears throat> now, he's in Australia, so banking rules are different. Disabling electronic access does not protect you from fraud. I know someone who lost $10,000 when somebody took money from his account by simply faking his signature. He never got the money back because he was never able to prove to the bank that it was a fraudulent transaction. The bank maintained all their security policies were followed and that it was him, not some criminal, who withdrew $10,000 out of his account. Still, I agree it's a good idea to disable electronic access. My retirement fund account only accepts electronic deposits. You may not withdraw or transfer out of the account electronically. Now, I, it's so, different in Australia than it is in the U.S. The rules vary. Yes. Well, I, the, the, I think the lesson, though, I liked when he, when he summed up saying, for example, in his retirement account, you can only do deposits. This is the, 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 the takeaway from this whole discussion is I would like our security conscious listeners to think of this like a firewall. 
you know, the original firewall was all packets could come in unless we denied them. And we quickly learned that was a bad idea. So we flipped the rules around. So it's a deny by default and then selectively permit. Similarly, in the way people, because I would just hate to have people lose money for no reason. And so in, in, in the same way, think about the way your accounts are interconnected and what privileges they have and remove the ones you don't need. By default, they probably all allow everything because unfortunately, that's, you know, the banking industry hasn't caught up with the lessons we've learned with, with firewalls. And so I know in my case, I've had to selectively disable features in my various accounts where I looked at them. I said, oh, wait, I never want this to happen. I don't need this. I don't need this. I don't I mean if I could turn off those ridiculous checks that they keep sending me from my credit card company, I would do that in a heartbeat. But that doesn't seem to be an option. Uh, so so th- think of it that way. Th- think in terms of, you know, features that are there that you could live without and whether there's any way you could imagine they could be abused because if you can turn them off, then then do. So I, I appreciate this little reminder. Rick Andrews, Mountain View, California, wrote, writes, Steve, listening to your podcast 453 on uh, certificate revocation. I heard you say the website owner sends the private key to the CA. I know you know it's the public key, but it is in the transcript. That's what you said. Uh, can you correct the transcript? So I, at least I just the record. <laughs> um, the problem, yeah. The, I mean, yeah. I've I've actually caught myself making this mis- mis- mistake a couple times, and just because I'm running at a thousand miles an hour and I say the wrong thing. Um, so, so I wanted to for if anyone was confused by that, I'm not going to go back and fix the transcript because it's still in the audio and it's still in the video. So it's more important to let everyone know who probably knows anyway, because I have said it correctly way more than I have said it incorrectly. And that is what's so cool about this is the the server owner mints a pair, a public key and a private key. The The private key never leaves. And that's what's so neat about this is in no way does this public key infrastructure ever require that they disclose their private key? And, you know, Squirrel, the Squirrel protocol works the same way. Um, It never leaves. Then in the case of the PKI uh, system, the public key is what goes off and gets signed. And that's the public key which the server is going to be sending off to everybody who connects with it. So there's like sending it to the certificate authority for, for signing loses nothing. I mean, basically, they're adding their signature, and then that's what's being sent down to every browser that connects. So the browser gets the public key, verifies the signature, because what causes them to trust the, the identity assertion that's being made. And then they use the public key to send things to the server that only the server with the matching private key can, can decrypt and vice versa. So it's a slick simple system and i will try to be careful when i say public and private in the future but yes the private key you're right rick i know the difference never leaves never should only the public one is floating around in the public 
Frank in München points out why certificate handling should be in the browser, not the OS. In the last security now, you made a point that the certificate handling should be done in the OS instead of the browser. Well, I, I disagree, especially in light of the recent XP expiry. <laughs> he says, expiry? If uh, Firefox used Windows to handle the certificates, we wouldn't get updates anymore. It would eventually not be safe to run Firefox in XP anymore. That's a good point. That is a good point. And, you know, now, for example, we... We have no more updates to XP. There are known malicious certificates, which are some of them are are root certificates that have gone bad, and some of them are intermediate certificates. And there is in Windows Certificate Manager an untrusted certificates category, and it's non-empty. There are certs in there. And if any certificate came that was signed by one of those intermediates or chained back to that bad route, Windows would know. But Frank's absolutely right that XP no longer gets the benefit of that. Now, Firefox does and Chrome does and well, actually Chrome doesn't on XP because Chrome's using XP's security system. So Chrome on XP would not be getting the updates. Firefox would. Frank has got a good point. Um, to, uh, if if new evil certificates occurred, and and you know, in honesty, those rarely happen. They can happen, but you know, we've talked about them when they have. It hasn't happened for like four or five years. Uh, but yes, I, I I certainly do take Frank's point. That's a good one. Chris in Colorado wonders about self-signed certificates. As a web programmer, I routinely create self-signed certificates on web servers so that during development I can connect to secured resources, HTTP and FTP. So if I create a self-signed cert at the server and then install it on my computer, am I putting myself at risk to man in the middle or some other attack? Thanks. It's a great question. Um, I do the same thing myself. I actually have a cert that is www.steve. And there's definitely no top-level domain named Steve. Um, uh, there's no risk at all. Um, actually, I would. There's so, some reason to argue that it's even more secure than using a chain because there's like less moving parts and less to go wrong. Remember that the root certificates that certificate authorities have are self-signed. The way the the chain gets anchored is with a, a certificate that the certificate authority signed itself. So it's a self-signed certificate that then signs an intermediate that signs the end cert. So um, Chris and anybody else, self-signed certs are a tremendous solution. You you install one in order to connect and and then put the public key on your end so that you trust it and in exactly the same way as the PKI model works but arguably even a little more simply because you're not trusting a chain you're just verifying that the certificate at the other end is correct and uh, yeah it's a great solution and no no man on the middle attack risk or anything else Greg uh, writing from unseen.is <laughs> wow, unseen is wonders about outbound firewall filtering. Do you set up your uh, software, software firewall 
Do you say, <laughs> hello? <laughs> Do you set your software firewalls to block outbound traffic? We all agree that inbound traffic should be blocked by default and allowed for only specific reasons. But what about outbound traffic? Do you recommend block all unless whitelisted or allowing all unless blocked? Hmm. Well, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because what's different about outbound is we know where it came from. And this was what created that whole early software firewall industry. You know, Leo, you and I spent countless hours on the screensavers oh, oh, yeah. talking about zone alarm right. and 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 similar firewalls where thanks to the fact that the outbound traffic is created in the system, the system knows which application originated it. So that's sort of gone out of favor these days. Um, it's sort of become automatic um, so that when you run applications, the applications are able to interact with the software firewall API in order to, when, when they need to in order to open ports automatically so that returning traffic can come in. For example, someone runs Skype on a Windows machine. Skype no longer has any trouble at all doing what it wants because there are is, there is the universal plug-and-play out on the router that's probably on unless the user has turned it off. And then there's Windows' own firewall, which says, oh, yeah, Skype. And, you know, Skype works with it in order to create whatever holes are necessary through the firewall. There, you know, for advanced users, there are still controls. You can go into Windows Firewall, for example, and mess around with what applications are doing what. But by default, what's the way things have evolved is incoming traffic is that is not expected is you know is, is just just blocked. It's dropped at the firewall boundary. Yet outbound traffic generated by applications is just generally allowed out. So it's we've sort of gone back to controlling the applications that run rather than than also separately controlling what they're able to do. You, if you had a an, a firewall that that you were willing to manage, uh, like we did back in the zone alarm days, where you'd like you know you'd install something and then it would start giving you pop ups and requiring permission and you'd have to deal with it. It's like well you certainly can do that. But we've just sort of switched. We've sort of fallen back to just kind of keeping an eye on what applications are running on our machine. All right. I wonder what unseen.is <laughs> is. What is is? Where is is? Uh, uh, I don't know. It's not Ireland. That's IAR, right? Uh, is. I'm sure Matthew Taylor. Wait a minute. Wasn't there a story about IS? Well, anyway. Or was it SI? Iceland? Maybe. I don't know. Israel? Matthew, <laughs> Israel. That's what it is. It's Israel. Ah, Israel. Israel. Yeah. Matthew Taylor, Brisbane, Australia. Another great Aussie uh, listener or reader or writer. Wonders <laughs> how he could open, op how he could have an open DNS resolver when Shields Up says it's closed. My ISP told me my network's sending out way too many DNS requests, and I have a problem. They they talked about ensuring port 53 was not open to the Internet. The network in question only has one computer on it, Windows 7. 
with no fancy DNS server technology running, I rang them. They said I could test my public IP with an open DNS resolver test, which I did. And it came back saying I was running one. What? But Shields Up reports the port 53 is closed. How can both these tests be true? Eventually, we figured out the router, a billion seventy-seven hundred NR2, had been compromised. Oh. Oh. We're seeing more and more of yeah. this. And we replaced the firmware to fix it. What's happening there? So what's happening is DNS uses UDP and Shields Up tests TCP. Ah. So what Shields Up has always done is to send, is to look for the port status of TCP because TCP connection setup always returns a packet if it's open for business. So we send a SYN, a so-called synchronized packet, and we get back a SYNAC if that port says, yeah, I'm open, come connect. And at that point, my test drops the connection uh, or maybe I send a reset back. I don't remember now. Uh, but I don't proceed to do a full open, as it's called. We only do a half open and then drop. Um, but w- one of the beauties of DNS is that it is even it is it is lighter weight than TCP. So that you send, rather than establishing a connection through the so-called you know three-packet handshake, DNS just sends a packet out with a question. And it gets a packet back with the answer. And if it doesn't get it, the answer back, it could have been lost. So it sends it again. And it does it a few times. And then if it doesn't get any answers, it, then it asks all the DNS servers that it has registered to see if anybody will, will get an answer. And the first one that answers gets promoted then to the top of the list of servers that it asks next time. So it's a nice worked out system. But that's why 53 wasn't shown as open is that his router wasn't responding to TCP port 53, even though that is valid. You can establish a TCP connection to a DNS server and and do the same kind of stuff over TCP. And in fact, something called zone transfers, for example, when you when you're moving an entire DNS zone to a to a different machine, when it wants to when a DNS server wants to get a, a whole zone, uh, it'll do that only o- only over TCP. It's not allowed over UDP. UDP is just for making your typical DNS queries. But in the case of his compromised router, it set up a server, a DNS server, only answering actual DNS queries, and that meant UDP and not TCP. So Shields Up didn't show it, and even though there was a UDP server there. And I've thought about enhancing the service over the years. It would be an undertaking. So maybe when I'm closer to the undertaker, uh, I will do that. Um, Because every UDP port is going to have a different protocol. I would need to actually create a UDP, I mean, a DNS server to meaningfully test people's port 53 and i'd have to create you know servers for all you know different udp service servers or clients actually to check the servers at the other side and that's way different than just checking for open ports so eh, you know it's on my to-do list but it's not even on the roadmap at this point (laughs) and that that explains why 
Dot is is Iceland. Iceland. Burr. Israel, as I should have known, is dot I-L. Benjamin Austin, Texas, wonders, as we often do, about pseudo-random mixing. <laughs> and all the talk of using random numbers, there's something I'm unclear about. You, you talked before about how you can have devices that produce true random values, albeit at a speed that precludes relying entirely upon them for all your random number needs. My question is, you've discussed mixing functions before. Once you combine pseudo-random values with a truly random seed, isn't the larger result random as well? Unless I'm missing, some, missing something. Mixing in a true random number generator to the random pseudo-random output would nullify any sort of guessing you could do on the factors that aren't truly random, would it not? Okay, well, there are a couple ideas kind of jumbled together here. Um, one of the, the probably the best example, the best classic example that we've talked about is the so-called one-time pad in crypto. Right. Where you take true randomly arrived at values, for example, from dice rolls, and you, you, you write them down. Then you mix your plain text with that. And because of the mixing, which can be as simple as an XOR, where the, where the random values simply randomly flip bits in your plain text, even though that doesn't seem like super amazing crypto, the fact that you randomly flip bits is the best, the best cipher that exists, strange as that is, because since there's no pattern to the bits you flipped, there's no way for someone to try to crack it using anything. It, it you know, it, like a statistical analysis, where if you'd had like a simple substitution cipher, the so-called you know, Caesar cipher, where you, you, you're just substituting one character or symbol in the language for another, and a, a frequency analysis will immediately reveal the, the frequency characteristics of the original language and allow you to start determining what the what the uh, what the substitution was but if you flip bits randomly that destroys any frequency bias even again it does, it's like it, it doesn't seem like it should like, it, like that would be strong enough but that's all it takes is randomly flipping bits and only the identical r random reflipping or unflipping um Puts it back, puts the message back to what you had. So, so that's where you're talking about mixing in randomness. Now, the other thing you mentioned is pseudo-random values, values and a seed. I was recently studying the Intel chip random number generator because it's one of many sources of entropy which squirrel harvests. Um, I, and I have this, this concept of harvesting broadly from a number of different streams of entropy with all having different characteristics in terms of amount of entropy, speed, attackability, knowability. And we'll, that, that's the, the topic for next week's uh, podcast, which I think people are going to really enjoy. Um, but what Intel does is they use a 
true random number generator to seed a pseudo random number generator. And so what's what's pseudo about a pseudo random number generator is that the numbers look random even though they're algorithmically produced. And if you knew what the, the say, well, in fact, in, in the Intel case, they use an AES counter uh, DRBG, deterministic random bit generator, where they, and that means they have the AES cipher, which has a counter fed into its data inputs, and an, and then we don't know what the counter is, is like where the counter is in its cycle. And then there's also a key, the AES cipher key determines what the mapping will be between the counter's value and the output. And that's really all you need. You just spin the counter and out comes values. The advantage of that is it can go at incredibly high speeds. And so, as Benjamin says, the the it may be the case that the quantum source for generating true random numbers just doesn't produce noise at the speed that we want to consume randomness. So architectures like the Intel chip, they do a compromise. They use the, the low bit rate true random generator to generate the seed for the for the algorithmic pseudo-random number generator. Now, what they also do is they are constantly reseeding because the, the, the concern is if you had a large enough sample of pseudo-random numbers, maybe you could work backwards and determine what the count and, and, the, and the key were. Um, and if that happened, you could determine what the past and the future numbers were. Because the danger with one of these algorithms is that, this, that its internal state could ever get known, in which case, because it's just an algorithm, you could predict the future and the past. And But the beauty is, since this is on the silicon, and very much like Apple's uh, you know, on secure enclave, there just isn't any way in there from the outside, from the pins, from from the firmware, from the software. You just can't get there. So they they've hidden it, and that makes it safe enough. In the same way, sort of like that, the uh, trusted platform module that never really got off the ground uh, was also a piece of hardware that the software had limited access to. So. These are some of the concepts we will be fleshing out in greater detail uh, next week. I don't. I thought now that almost all. Um, excuse me. I just rebooted. <laughs> had that burrito for lunch. I thought that most all uh, new hardware had TPM in it. Um, it. There may be TPM, but we're just not seeing the kind of use of it that we really? would expect. I thought. Yeah. Like, the fingerprint readers and a lot of these devices were. Uh, Relying for some reason, I thought TPM had actually kind of sneakily, you know, become a success. But I, I could be, I could be wrong on that. We wanted, we still want to do on know how a random number generator involving what was it a, a diode? What was it that you 
suggested. Yeah, it turns out it's very simple. Just a diode biasing at a base emitter junction on a transistor. I love that. Just it just generates noise. It just you know it just comes out, and then you you know count it or filter it or do whatever you want to do to it. Uh, our uh, final question is a tweet from Scott Martin at Scott Martin. What happens if someone creates a new Squirrel ID on a client that doesn't have good entropy? Couldn't you uh, and them end up with? Couldn't you end up with collisions then? Well, a great question. And we will be, uh, this is our lead in to next week's podcast because I have arranged for no clients ever not to have sufficient entropy. (laughs) Entropy harvesting! At least none that I have anything to deal with. One of the things that some of the guys in the news group were saying, you know, Steve, deal with this random stuff later. You know, other people who are trying to write clients are waiting for the final spec to get blessed yeah, by you more, writing the code much more fun. to implement it. <laughs> this is more well, fun. <laughs> I, what's kind of funny about me is I just I'm I can't I can't jump ahead somehow. I mean, I have to have this it done in order to move forward. And the nice thing about this is I I published all the source code and and the algorithm and everything so in enough detail that anybody else who wanted to implement the solution I I came up with has everything they need to do so even in a, in a different language because I've completely explained how it works. I'll I'll give some links to that stuff next week. But but the danger is that entropy becomes an afterthought. That is that, you know, again, this is what has happened in the past. People have gotten the algorithms all worked up. And then it's like, oh, wait, uh, we need random stuff. Oh, let's just call the rand function or something. I mean, they it just doesn't get the attention it needs. And nothing is more important than us having sufficient entropy. So I wanted to just know that I'd solved that problem so that I could say no platform that my code ever runs on will ever have insufficient entropy, and I'll prove that next week. By the way, I checked uh, out. TPM is on almost everything now, including Chromebooks. Oh, it is? It is. Acers, Asus, Dell, HP, Lenovo, Fujitsu, Panasonic. So even non-laptops, because laptops had them early and for a long time, but I wasn't aware that it was on desktop. M- yeah, well, and I think the cheap stuff doesn't probably, but because you, but because it's built into like the Ethernet chipsets from Broadcom and stuff, it's all over the place. Okay. It's uh, supported on all the operating systems except Linux. Um, I bet imagine Linux could support it too if it really wanted to. Meaning that there's an a, a, an OS API apparently that allows yeah. you then to Windows to talk seven to it. eight Vista all support it. Windows two thousand eight Server two thousand eight. It works with BitLocker, so if you're using BitLocker with your Windows machine, the built-in uh, be, OS encryption, it'll the, use TPM. The, the keys get sticky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah, good. It's funny because I, I, like you, remember this whole controversy over TPM, and you kind of one just figures, ah, they probably gave up because it was an Intel spec. <laughs> but no, not only did they not give up, they won. They just did it good. sneakily. <laughs> good. <laughs> Without telling anyone. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's where you'll find 16 kilobit audio of this show as well as Full transcriptions written by a human being, the lovely and talented Elaine Ferris, out in her ranch in the middle of nowhere. 
don't even want to know how hot it is out oh, there right now. Can you now. imagine? <laughs> uh, we also have full quality uh, audio and high def video available at our site, twit.tv slash SN for security now. And uh, wherever finer netcasts are aggregated and distributed, including iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, all you need really is an app. Almost all the mobile platforms now have uh, Twit apps from our many third party developers, and we tip our hats to you guys. And encourage you all to download and install it. Makes it easy to listen and watch whenever you want. Steve uh, is also the uh, man behind Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance utility. You'll find that at grc.com and lots of freebies. Next week, we go entropy harvesting. That should be yep. fun. I like that. <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. Another little bit of a, of a propeller head episode, but I think it's going to give that. everyone lots to, lots to think about. I don't mind yep. that. And... Uh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, questions for the following week can be uh, posted on Steve's site. He doesn't do email. Just go to grc.com slash feedback and leave your questions there. Or tweet him. He is at SGGRC on the Twitter. More and more of I your am. questions come via Twitter. That's cool. And he talks to people <laughs> and converses. Doesn't follow anyone. He just, you, you, he follows you if you, if you add him. SGGRC. Thank you, Mr. G. Thanks, Leo. See you next time on Security Now.